Okay, well, it's great to be with you. If you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn to Luke chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, it's going to come up on the screen. We're week two. If you didn't hear week one, Andrew, last week, I'd really encourage you to pick up that message. You can get that as a podcast. Uh, He talked about the paradoxes of the kingdom, and a lot of what he talked about starts to play out in this chapter we're going to look at today. And we're going to read quite a lot of uh, Luke 14, and it's quite long, but I want you to try and stay with me and try and read in, like, try and be in the passage as we read it, okay? And we're going to read from verse 1, and it says this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and the experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately put it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your sisters or your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed, although they cannot repay you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he saw his servant tell those who had been invited, come for, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field, and I must go and see it, which I think is the lamest excuse, by the way. If you have a field, surely we've already seen it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the alleys, of the town and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. It's the same group again. Sir, the servant said, what you have ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be their disciple, be my disciple. Let's drop to verse 34. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. 
Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now, this whole story begins with Jesus being invited to a dinner party. And it is a very awkward event, basically. I don't know if you've ever been to a party or an evening a dinner party where actually it turns out to be just quite an awkward moment. Oh, you ever had one of those moments? It all begins, begins badly generally because you don't know how to greet them. You don't know how they do it. Do they shake hands? Do they hug? Do they kiss on the cheek? And they don't know what you do, so you kind of go for this weird blend and you get it all wrong and you end up kissing them on the ear. You ever had that kind of experience? That happens in church and everyone pretends it didn't really happen. But you come out and go, I just kissed that lady on the ear and it's so awkward. Well, this moment if you read the passage right, is incredibly awkward. And Jesus is actually a very difficult guest at a dinner invite, which is weird because normally he's a great guest. In John 2, he's the guy who, who turns a huge amounts of water into the best wine in the house. But here is an incredibly awkward moment. We're told that he's been invited to a Pharisee's house and they are all watching him. But what you discover is Jesus is watching them. And Jesus begins by drawing everyone's attention to this man. There's a man seemingly in the doorway or in the house, probably just outside the house, and he's suffering. He has an abnormal swelling. So he asks them, is it okay to heal this man on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus already knows what they think because Jesus already has encountered this issue where he's healed on the Sabbath, and he gets a big kickback from the religious authorities. So he says, is it okay? Silence. So Jesus grabs the man, heals him, and sends him on his way. And then Jesus asks him another question. He goes, okay, well, what about if you have a child or an oxen? He, he talks a lot about oxen. He has a thing about oxen. I don't know what that's about. But what if you have a child or an oxen, and they fall into a well on the Sabbath, what are you going to do? Is it okay to pull them out or not on the Sabbath? Again, total silence. Now, what Jesus is doing is he's beginning to uncover the fact He's saying basically to the Pharisees, you obey the law when it suits you. You obey the law basically to do what's useful to you and who you value. So if a kid falls in or your oxen, your BMW you crank into the well, you're going to go and sort it out because it matters to you. But this person here, who everybody's ignoring, they're not important to you. So suddenly you're law bearers and you can't heal them on the Sabbath. That's what he's doing. So he makes the point. And again, more silence, awkwardness, everybody is shifting around in their seats. And by this point, no one knows where to look. People are starting to pick up their phones and starting to text under the table, get me out, call me now, say I have to come home. They're wondering if they can go and refill their drinks somewhere. Now, if I had been there, I would have said to Jesus, okay, enough now. Like you've, you've kind of made your point. It's already awkward. You've made your point, right? But Jesus, in Luke 14, clearly has not already made his point because he carries on. And this time, he kind of cranks the awkwardness up even more because he has seen something that he really dislikes. Because basically, he's seen how everybody in the party is jostling for the best seat at the table. In fact, the Gospels has quite a lot about where you sit at the table. He keeps referring to this. People keep asking, can I sit in the best seat when we're in heaven? And he's observed this. So he does what any normal person would do. He starts to tell a story. Guess what the story is about? It's about 
a dinner party where everybody is jostling for the best seats at the party. So he starts to tell our story, which is incredibly awkward. It'd be like if we were having a wedding, you know, and weddings, you know, we laid out all the tables, and there's the top table here, and there's tables near the front, and there's some other tables behind the pillars, and you found yourself with your name plaque on the table at the back with sold Auntie Mildred, who you'd never met, and your best mates were at the front. So you go through the wedding, and you start to move your nameplate around in your plaque so you get to sit in a better table. And actually, you get really confident because you decide, actually, I quite like to sit on the top table. And you, you, you move your name up onto the top table to sit with the family. And it'd be like that happening. And then someone like me, who's not even invited to speak, gets up to do a speech about people who keep moving their name plaques to sit on the top table. Jesus is observing people competing for the best seats, and he tells a story about people competing for the best seats and wanting to sit on the top table. It's not subtle. So it's now very awkward, but he's still not finished because now he's turning to the host, and the host must be thinking, why did I ever invite this guy to my party? But he turns to the host, and he says, gives him some direct advice. He goes, next time, mate, when you throw a party, don't invite just all your friends and your family and your rich neighbors, but invite people who cannot repay you Invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Silence. Now, anybody with any kind of emotional intelligence knows at this point in this moment, all you should do is keep your mouth shut, put your head down, don't catch his eye. He's going to pick you out if he does. Don't say anything, just keep quiet. We've been in those kind of settings Everybody knows, everybody around the table knows, don't say anything, but there's always one person who, for whatever reason, has not worked that out in the room, right? They haven't worked it out, and there is one person here who cannot deal with the silence at all, cannot deal with the awkwardness, the awkwardness is kind of ramping up, and so there's this guy who pipes up, and he says something, and clearly he thinks he's saying something that Jesus might like, so he picks something religious, because Jesus is talking about dinner parties, So he picks something that I think, well, maybe Jesus will like this. Uh, Maybe we'll get Jesus on side. Maybe we'll be able to steer the thing back into a more normal dinner party. So this guy ignores all the social cues and pipes up with his religious statement. And he says this, blessed is the man who will eat the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Good, he's thinking. No, not good, because this sets Jesus off even more. Guess what Jesus does now? He tells another story about a feast in the kingdom of heaven. And in this story, he says, the party is ready, and the master's ready, and they, the, but everybody who's invited, none of them show up. So the master's cross, so he sends his servant out to find people. He says, they sent out to get the poor and the lame and the blind and the crippled, send them out. And then he sends them out again because they still haven't got enough people. The, so, the people that society discounts, everybody that people ignore, the unimportant ones, the people that considered unclean, everybody, Jesus is saying, just like this man, he's healed. So the whole story begins with this man. Bring them in. And then he finishes, if you like, with the punchline to end all punchlines. He says, I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. That's a fairly heavy line that Jesus lands. Now, what is going on? Well, the first thing that's going on is the guy who 
invited Jesus is thinking, why on earth did I ever invite him? Mental note to self, I'm never inviting him ever again to one of my parties. But the main thing that's happening is this. Jesus is reacting to and confronting what he sees before him as a demonstration of what his kingdom is absolutely not about. He sees a misunderstanding of spiritual maturity about what matters and who matters, and he sees also a misuse of power and position. And Jesus is confronting it by both teaching into it, but also demonstrating with this man what the kingdom of God is like, who the kingdom is for, how the kingdom works, and how we are to live in the kingdom. And that is what he's doing. He's teaching and he's demonstrating. And what he says in Luke 14 is both challenging, it's also quite comforting, and it is basically leading you to a choice. That's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is highly challenging and confrontational in this moment. Now, I grew up going to quite a traditional church, and I remember there was a little room in that church in between the kind of worship area and the old hall, back hall, and you had to go through this tiny little room. And in the tiny little room was a picture on the wall of a guy with long hair. I assume that was Jesus. I don't know if it was, but I think that's who it was. Either that, it was some kind of 60s hippie, because he looked very chilled. He may have even had some lambs. I don't know. He looked like he might have been smoking something, but he was very chilled out, this guy. Now, I think that's supposed to be what Jesus looked like, but that is not the Jesus you read about in Luke 14. Because if you read Luke 14 properly, you're reading a guy who's like a revolutionary. He's a challenger. He's confrontational, and he is calling people to choose. He brings a message of the kingdom which is challenging and comforting, but he's saying you need to choose. Now, if you don't find Luke 14 challenging, you're probably not reading yourself in the story the way you should. So when I finished school, I was fortunate enough, privileged enough to be able to go to university. I went to university, and the university I went to basically had quite a lot of posh people there, right? Now, my kids think I'm posh, basically because where I grew up, uh, there was a Pizza Express and there was no Morley's. And, and they just think, and basically, even though I've lived in London for most of my life, I'm not actually a Londoner as far as they're concerned because they're all born in Lewisham and I wasn't. So they, they tease me, they think I'm posh. But compared to these kids I went to university with, they were like on another planet, okay? And some of them were a bit snobby. Uh, uh, not all, most of them actually were great. But we considered them quite snobby. The problem was that we were getting quite snobby about them being snobby because there's a bit of a social snob in all of us. And there's a bit of a Pharisee in all of us. And interestingly, Luke 15, that we'll go on to as, as the series goes on, in Luke 15, you get the famous story of the prodigal son, or the two sons. And one of the people I've read about that passage says, it's very difficult for Christians to avoid going from being the rebellious younger brother coming back to God without turning into the self-righteous older brother. There's a bit of a Pharisee in all of us. And that's why Jesus in Luke 14 is challenging us. And he is challenging the Pharisees because he knows that many of them have deeply misunderstood what matters, about who matters, about what spiritual maturity looks like. You see, they were supposed to be Israel's teachers. In other words, they're supposed to help people find God and invite them in. But often what you find is they're more like religious bouncers, aren't they? 
You don't live right. You don't look right. You can't come in. And churches, when they get it wrong, become a bit like that. You don't live right. You don't look right. You can't come in. And Jesus, whenever he sees that, seems to confront it. Particularly, he confronts what appears to be like what some commentators call boundary-marked spirituality. In other words, not all the Pharisees, I'm sure, but a lot of the Pharisees that we read about basically had this tendency to assess and judge people and critique them on certain external boundaries and decide how spiritually acceptable and mature they were by certain indicators. So the Pharisees loved it. They loved how loudly and eloquently people prayed. They would judge people on how devout they were or appeared, how well they knew the law, how closely they followed the rules, how much money they gave publicly, even often where they were born was a massive thing for them. They would keep score, and then critically they would treat people differently depending on the score. And some people in that society didn't even score at all. If you were impure or a foreigner or an outsider or ungodly, you didn't even score. And wherever Jesus encounters that kind of approach, he challenges it. So in Luke 21, you have the story of a widow giving a tiny amount of money where the rich are giving enormous amounts. And Jesus says, she's given, given more than anybody here. And it's like, can you give me your definition of more? Because he appears to count differently to us. And wherever Jesus sees that kind of boundary-marked spirituality, he confronts it. It's incredibly challenging. So that's why in Matthew 6, when he teaches on prayer, he goes, don't be like the hypocrites who just pray for show, who stand out in the street corners and they're praying. You be like Go into your room, close the door, and pray in secret. He's not saying that's the only place you can ever pray. He's saying, don't do these things for show, to show off. It's not about self-promotion. And he confronts it. He keeps challenging them, and it should challenge us, because every culture, I want to suggest, has a tendency to do the same in different ways. So I used to teach uh, every year a bunch of students. I did it for four or five years, like 18 to kind of 21-year-olds. I would teach them on um, what was called spiritual disciplines. So I'd do a whole day's teaching on reading a Bible, praying, all the kind of important things to do which can help you grow, really important stuff. And every, it would be a different group every year, but every year I would ask the same question. And it was a bit of a naughty question, but it was quite illustrative. I'd basically say, in our kind of church, how, do we, how can you tell who the spiritually mature people are? What are the markers that we read? And every year they gave me the same answer. They would say things like this. Where they sat in the meeting. <laughs> Don't feel nervous about sitting in the front of everybody. It's absolutely fine. But this is how they say, how well people prayed out. How big their Bible was. Okay? How demonstrative they are in worship. How many church meetings they attended. Now, before I get in trouble anywhere, can I just say... It's great to attend lots of meetings. It's fantastic to pray out. It's good to sit near the front. It's good to be outward passionate because all those things are good indicators often of health. But the problem is they're not the thing and they become the thing very easily if we're not careful. Because you can do all those things and be mean and selfish and have a heart far from God but yet turn up to every meeting. And Jesus, whenever he sees it, challenges it and says that's not 
the most important thing. In fact, he's asked the question in Matthew 22, what is the most important thing? A Pharisee comes, he goes, sum up the law for us. Tell us what's the most important thing. And Jesus says, I'll sum it up. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And on that, the whole law hangs on those two things. That is what Jesus describes as spiritual maturity. That's how the kingdom operates. That's what matters, in other words. And so Jesus starts to teach it, but he also starts to demonstrate it with this man who is suffering. And everybody else is desperately trying to ignore this guy. He is basically invisible to everybody else. And the first thing Jesus does is draw their attention to this guy. Do you see this man? Is it lawful for me to heal him? What Jesus is asking, is saying, basically, he's asking, is it lawful? But what he's saying is, I see him. He is not invisible to me. You see, when you see someone, you value them. When we ignore people, it's like we're saying they're not that important. And Jesus keeps seeing people throughout the Gospels. He keeps seeing people that everybody else wants to ignore. Bartimaeus calls out, and all the people around Bartimaeus are saying, shut up. They literally tell him, shut up. And Bartimaeus calls out, and Jesus stops. Jesus sees the kids up in the tree. He sees him. What he's saying is, this man matters. In my kingdom, people matter. This is who the kingdom is for. And then he goes a step further. He goes, he goes, he picks, he, he grabs him and he says he took hold of him. Now, Jesus can heal people without touching them. We've seen that lots of the He doesn't have to touch him to heal him. So why does he touch him? He touches him to say something about the acceptability of this man. I'm touching him because I want him. I see him and I want him and he's acceptable to me. He's not unclean to me. And often throughout the Gospels, if you look who Jesus touches who he heals, who he delivers, it is a very intentional demonstration of what the kingdom is like. Jesus is not just healing kind of random people everywhere, although I'm sure there were lots of people who got healed. But very often the ones that the gospel writers pick out are signs of the kingdom. He's touching the untouchable. He's healing the woman. He's talking to the woman he shouldn't talk to. He's touching the blind. He's touching people that nobody else would touch. There were lots of rules about who you could or could not touch. And Jesus is going, I'm going to touch him because he's important to me and I want to accept him. He's, he's one of mine, in other words. And then he heals him. In other words, he's saying, this guy who I see, who I'm going to touch, is going to receive something of, kingdom of the kingdom power. So Jesus is demonstrating to the Pharisees, this is who the kingdom is for. And this is the way the kingdom works. Because this man didn't deserve anything, and this man is unclean, and yet Jesus still meets him where he is. See, often we think, and the Pharisees, I suspect, thought as well, I, I would come to Jesus, but I need to sort out my life first. I know I'm a bit unclean. I know that relationship is a mess. I, I know that addiction thing that's going on in secret is horrible. And I, uh, so I would, I would come to Jesus, but if I can just sort myself out, if I can just elevate myself enough and clean myself up, then I'll come. I'll be good enough to come. And Jesus goes, that is not the way the kingdom works. Jesus meets someone in all his brokenness, all the mess, all the difficulty. He meets him there. And from there, he starts to get changed. Don't hold back from Jesus because your life is a bit messy. 
That is exactly why we need to come. So he's demonstrating who the kingdom is for and the way the kingdom works. But he's also telling stories about how we are to live in the kingdom if we're Christians here. If you've given your life to Jesus, he is telling stories about how we are to live. In other words, if we want to be in the kingdom, we want to live emulating the king and living out his kingdom values. So he tells a story about a dinner party. He says, don't jostle for the best seats at the table. What does that mean? Well, the table is a picture of our lives. Jesus is teaching, in my kingdom, don't live your lives where you are consistently pushing yourself forward and promoting yourself all the time. Live your life effectively in the cheap seats, allowing other people to come through. So if you have friends, share them. If you have money and resources, share them. Give opportunity to other people. Promote other people. That's how the kingdom works. And when you do that, you'll find that God promotes you. But live your life. In other words, rethink your seating plan of your life. And Jesus is saying that's how you are to operate. He's emulate me. In other words, give your life away. And then he turns to the host and he says, when you have a party, change your invite list. Now, I think we're much more comfortable thinking of that passage as like a metaphor as well, that that's a picture of our lives. And in one sense, I think it probably is. That effectively, we need to live our lives in a way noticing people, inviting people, stopping for people, talking to people that other people don't notice and won't speak to, who are invisible to society. So I think it is a metaphor, but I also think, if I'm honest, that Jesus is actually giving a bit of social advice. I think Jesus is saying to him, and I think to us, you need to rethink who you invite to your table. That is why he is deeply challenging. Because, to, in some sense, don't take this too far, but I would just say let's live in the challenge for a moment. In some sense, who we have around our table says who we value the most. It probably indicates more than anything else. Now, Jesus is not saying you can never invite your family. I know some of you are thinking, that is the exact excuse I've been looking for for years at Christmas. <laughs> I would invite you for Christmas, but Jesus said in Luke 14, I have to invite all these other people. That's not what he's saying. He's saying rethink who is important and live your lives accordingly. It's incredibly challenging. I find it incredibly challenging personally, but it's also hugely comforting because Jesus is saying, if you know your life is a mess and you're broken and you've train wrecked some stuff, if you know that's where you are, if you're known you're prone to thinking God could never, you know, never accept me, I shouldn't even darken the door of a church, then you are exactly who Jesus has come for. Because that's all of us. Some of us are just more aware of it than others of us. And he's saying, that's who the kingdom is for. It's not for people who get it all together. Jesus says, I haven't, you know, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. Jesus says, I'm, that's who I'm coming for. I'm coming to throw open the doors of the kingdom. If you're suffering here physically, it means Jesus is sensitive to your suffering. It means if you feel invisible, he sees you. 
It means if you feel worthless, you're valued. So it's incredibly comforting as well because it's challenging, but the flip side is it's incredibly comforting because God knows, He cares for me. I'm welcomed. And He's aware of the difficulties and the challenges that I'm going through. But it is also a choice, can I say. Jesus is saying, and there's so much you could say about this, but Jesus is saying, you have to choose. So if you read on in Luke 14, verse 25, he switches attention from the Pharisees to the crowds. It says a great crowd have been following him, have been coming with him. And he turns to them and he says these words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. You think, man, that's so hard. Whoever does not carry their cross in front of me cannot be my disciple. And later he says, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now again, we like to quickly kind of cross over from those and move on. He doesn't clearly doesn't mean that. Does he mean we have to hate our family? No, he doesn't. That would go against everything else that Jesus teaches. In John 19, he's at the cross and he's pointing out his mother, saying, look after her. What is Jesus is talking about is the fact you have to make a choice. Jesus is saying, you have to choose whether you're in or you're not. Whether you're going to follow me or you're not. Whether you're going to trust me or you're not whether you're going to put your trust in all your possessions or your relationships or the things that you're hoping will somehow give you the things you're after or whether you are going to choose to put me first and that you trust me. And you trust me when I say in Matthew 16 that seek me first and all these things will be given to you. Will you put me first? It's like he's basically saying it's all or nothing. Trust me, follow me, absolutely and it's an incredibly radical call. And he turns to the crowds who are following him, who love what he's doing, and he basically says, I haven't come to be a miracle worker to give you a religious fix when you need a bit of help. Because it's easy to treat Jesus like that. I'm having a bit of a tough time, so I'm going to go to church, I'm going to get a fix. And Jesus is like, I haven't come to do that. And he turns to the religious people and he says, I haven't come to be a guest at your dinner party. Basically, I haven't come just to sit in one of the seats at your table and be, you know, a nice guest who helps you out occasionally, a bit of an advisor to your life. He said, I'm not, I'm not coming to that either. And that's why he tells the story of the banquet. Because what he's saying is, I have come as the great host of the greatest of all parties, and I'm throwing wide the doors of the kingdom for anybody to come. It will cost you everything to come, but it will be worth more than anything. That's what he's saying. I haven't come to give you a religious fix. I haven't come to be an advisor to your life where you trust all these other things and you kind of trust me. I've come to call you to choose. It will cost you everything, but it will be worth more than anything. And Jesus is saying in Luke 14, some people won't or can't choose to follow him. That's the hard, one of the very hard things in this passage. Some of them are just too religious. 
they won't come because they're too religious. It's like they kind of believe, but they basically want to use God for their own good, for their own purpose. They want to promote themselves off the back of being obedient. So they're almost too religious. They miss it. Others, they won't choose him because they never wanted a Lord. They simply wanted someone to give them a religious and spiritual hit every now and again. They don't really want to follow. They just want a bit of a hit occasionally. And some, it seems, just won't choose him because they are so wrapped up in their own lives. In other words, we're so busy, we just miss it. It's not about deciding not to. It's just about never getting there in our heads. We're busy with our oxen, with our BMW, with our marriage, with our possessions. All those things are good things, but we are so wrapped up in those things that we miss what he is really calling us to do. And Jesus says, you have to choose, and he finishes with these words, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Whenever Jesus says stuff like that, you need to listen. We need to listen. I need to listen. It's challenging. It's comforting, but we need to choose. There's a choice to be made. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to pray.